1 John chapter 1, continuing our series in 1 John. First John chapter 1, our sermon text this evening is verses 8 through 10, but I will read verses 5 through 10 uh, this evening. So 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 will be our reading, and 8 through 10 is the sermon text. This is God's word. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The sons of the reading of God's word, please receive it as such, and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this very important text of Scripture that you have given to us and handed down to us, the, that we may know a proper attitude towards sin, that we, I pray that all of us here would not be ones who would deny our unsinfulness, but ones that would freely confess it to you and throw ourselves at your mercy. We pray that you will help us to see the meaning of this text this evening, that it'll be preached clearly and build up your church. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. There's an old story of an emperor who went to visit his local prison. And he started talking to the inmates. And one after one, they kept protesting their innocence. You know, I'm just, I'm just a victim of the system. It's a mistake that I'm here. So he hears this one after the other, each you know, prison, guy in prison he's talking to. But there's one guy who's just sitting there silent. He says, okay, the emperor says to him, well, what about you? Who do you blame for your situation? And the guy says, well, sir, nobody. I'm, I'm guilty, and I deserve my punishment. And the emperor, startled, called the warden and said, Warden, get this guy out of here before he corrupts all these innocent men. Right? People are self-righteous by nature, right, aren't we? We don't very easily admit our own wrongdoing. Why? Well, because we like to think of ourselves as good people, right? Perhaps we make a few mistakes, Right? But we're really good men with good hearts to have good intentions. But sometimes we make some mistakes, some errors in our decision-making thought processes. Just a little mistake, though. Right? Or if we do something that really bothers our conscience, well, it's just other people's fault. Or we rationalize it. That is, we, we make it seem a certain way to ourselves. Like if you, if you tilt your head and, and close both your eyes and you look at it, you say, yeah. I can find a way to make this look like it's actually a good thing, what I was doing here. And we tell ourselves, you know what, I was really, my my motives were good. And we tell ourselves over and over and over and over again until we believe it, that the bad thing you did wasn't actually bad at all. It was actually a good thing, right? That's rationalizing it away. We can find some way to say it's okay and our consciences are satisfied with that. Yet, 
The issue with denying our own sin, though common, is one of extreme importance, this issue. In fact, as we'll see this evening, the, the issue of denying your own sinfulness is fatal, as we'll see. It's, it's evidence of an unconverted soul. To, to, to deny that you're a sinner is evidence that you're on your way to hell. To deny that you sin is a denial of God's word. It's a rejection of Jesus. And in fact, it's a rejection of the gospel. Again, as we'll see this evening. So the verses prior to the text, verses 8 through 10, the verses prior, we were given a, a test from John here to, what, to, to see whether or not you're saved. Remember, one of the purposes of the book is in 1 John five thirteen. Near the end, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the, one of the purposes of the book is, is tests to know whether you're saved. And he's already given us one. That's what we covered last time. It's this. Um, do you walk in the darkness or do you walk in the light? That was verses 5 to 7. In other words, is your life characterized by submission to the word of God and, and walking according to his commandments? Or, on the other hand, do you live with indifference towards the word of God and live an unrepentant, sinful life? So he says that if you claim to have fellowship with God, yet walk in darkness, then your claim to be saved is a lie. You're not saved. But if you walk in the light, he says that is evidence that you really are saved, that you are in fellowship with God. If you're walking in the light as God himself is in the light. All right, so we look at those fruits as we saw last time. Now, in the passage this evening, John's kind of elaborating on this test of whether you're walking in the light or walking in the darkness. And he's going to discuss the true Christian's attitude towards sin, as well as the fake Christian's attitude towards sin. The one who walks in the light has a certain view of sin, and the one who walks in the darkness has a very different view of sin. And that's what's contrasted here in verses 8 through 10. So that being said, let's look at, look at verse 8. <clears throat> verse 8, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So just as he did in verse 6, he, he starts um, employing these phrases that say, if we say, and what he's doing there is basically this. He's saying, if somebody in the church says X, Y, and Z, then this is what you should think about that. And that's what he's doing here as well. In this case, is if someone says they have no sin, then what you should think about that is he's deceiving himself and the truth is not in him. That's the reality. If somebody says, I'm not a sinner, they're lying to themselves and they are not saved. That's his point. So you might be thinking, okay, what, what, people really say, I have no sin, right? Do people really act that way? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely do. Think of, for example, just to begin with, that rich young ruler, right, in Luke 18 that Jesus encountered. Remember this? It says, a ruler questioned Jesus, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's already dealing with this guy's assumption that there are good people in the world, which is a false assumption, right? So Jesus says, okay, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, okay. All these things I have kept from my youth. Just like that. No problem. Easy. So when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack. 
Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, don't just skate over that. This guy really just say, I've never lied. He did. I've always honored my father and mother. He said, yeah, I've done that forever. Is that it? What else? Amazing, isn't it? He can just say, of course. And Jesus is looking at him and say, okay, what about this? And he points out his idolatry. This guy is a covetous, greedy, idolatrous man and doesn't see it. Right? He's looking at Jesus and saying, yeah, I've done all the commandments. What, what am I missing here? People can really be that self-deceived and thinking, yeah, I'm not a sinner. I've kept the commandments. And that's what John is dealing with in the passage this evening. There are many groups, both in the past and in the present, who deny sin. Now, the group that, that John was dealing with here in 1 John, as we've talked about, is these early Gnostics, right? These early Gnostic false teachers who were in the church here and then left it. Um, the Gnostics, remember, taught this, this uh, dualism between the body and the spirit, this, this dichotomy between them that the, the physical body is bad and the spirit really is the true person. The physical world was an accident, never really should have been created, but it accidentally was, it's bad. God doesn't care about what you do in your body, therefore. That was, that was their ethic. What you do in the body doesn't matter. The body is, we're going to be liberated from it anyway, so it doesn't matter what we do. The spirit is undefiled by what we do in our bodies. That was their teaching, which led to all sorts of you know, rampant sin, because, hey, who cares, right? They could, they could say, we have no sin. That claim, we have no sin, refers to not possessing a sinful nature. I have no sin. I, I don't, I'm not in a sinful condition. I'm not a sinner. And therefore, I'm, I don't sin either. Because I'm not a sinner, so I don't sin as a result of that. And that phrase here is in the present tense. They're saying that currently, today, I have no sin. Okay? They're saying that as a present tense thing. So, John says about them that such a person who denies that he's a sinner is self-deceived. They're deluded. They're living in la-la land because they don't see themselves as sinners, right? So, why, why is that? Why are they self-deceived? How, how so? so? These people have, have really convinced themselves, saying, right now, I have no sin. I'm not a sinner. I've done nothing wrong in the eyes of God. They've, they've manipulated their own conscience in such a way that they believe the lie they tell to themselves that I'm a good person. To the Gnostics, suppressed their God-given conscience by adopting this view that says it doesn't matter what we do in the body. It doesn't, doesn't matter at all. It's not really wrong. John says about such a view that they're self-deceived and the truth is not in them when they think that. They have no room for the word of God in their lives, in other words. The truth is not in them. Instead, they've rejected what God has said about sin, namely that what you do in the body is sinful when you do things that are against his law. And therefore, because they've rejected what God has said, the word, the, they're not walking in the truth, and the truth finds no place in them. How could somebody be walking in the light, walking in the light of the truth of God, when they deny one of the most basic teachings of God, that man is a sinner? He's, John's saying, it can't be. The truth is not in them. See, the fact that they're self-deceived is, is blatant, obvious, right? Such, such a view that what we do in the body is irrelevant, cannot be held consistently. Right? Think about that. The Gnostics were saying, hey, what we do in the body doesn't matter. Well, that, what that would lead to is, who cares what we do? 
So if one Gnostic murders another Gnostic, who cares? It's just done in the body, so it doesn't matter. One Gnostic commits adultery with another. Well, it's just in the body, though, so it doesn't really matter. It's not really wrong. But furthermore, and more central here, the self-deception is this. The Gnostics claimed to be Christians and yet denied that they were presently a sinner. They, they claimed to belong to Christ, but yet denied that they were sinners. That's a self-deception. Why? How, how is it that somebody could claim to know Christ who died for people's sins when, in fact, his people aren't sinners? I mean, how inconsistent can you be, right? They're self-deceived. doesn't make any sense unless you alter the gospel message, which is exactly what they were trying to do. So such a person who has deceived himself into thinking that he knows Christ, even though his beliefs directly contradict the teachings of Jesus himself about sin. What did Jesus teach us about sin? Matthew 15, 18 and 20, he said, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders, These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So do we have sin in our hearts? Yes, that's where it comes from. And when we do them, we're defiled, we're dirty because of them. So that is the very opposite to what the Gnostics were teaching. But yet they claim to know Jesus. These people are self-deceived. They're living in a fantasy world. That's what John is saying. But the Gnostics back then are not the only group of people who are sin deniers. Today we have, for example, in the world, humanists and atheists. Joel Beakey summarizes it this way. Very, very good, succinct summation here of the issues. You'll notice this is very common in the culture today. Joel Beakey said this. Humanists deny the existence of sin altogether. They say sin is a physiological aberration or psychological illness sociological deviation, educational disadvantage, or environmental problem. Man is essentially good through education, counseling, medication, social reforms, or economic assistance. He can overcome these problems and will progress until he reaches perfection. And Beaky comments, he says, these people are guilty of calling sin by another name and denying its moral character as an evil power producing evil fruit. And I stand to that quote. Right on, isn't it? It's a prominent view today, just to deny sin's existence at all. This view oftentimes is, view, is, is fueled by atheism. There is no God, so there's no sin, there's no accountability, all of that. What we do is merely sociological, it's the effect of our upbringing, um, it's due to insanity or whatever they want to say, and the solution, therefore, is education, counseling, medication, and, and so on. See, the problem with humanism, though, and humanists, when they deal with sin or deal with evil in the world, is that they, they deny that sin exists, but yet recognize that people do evil things. So, for example, if, if, if Adolf Hitler's actions are merely because he was on drugs, which he was, or due to his social upbringing, then really he's not able to be held accountable because that's not his fault. It's just the result of other things outside of him. It's not because he's evil. People are good. In fact, that would be true of every criminal. It's something else's fault, but not theirs. 
And if that's the case, then why would you hold them guilty? And why would you hold them accountable and do anything for them or to them for what they have done? In fact, they're not, they're just doing things and they're not even really evil things because it's not, they're not doing something that's wrong and, you know, something that they'd be kind of guilty for. They're just doing actions, just actions, which raises the second issue and more basic problem is how does a humanist know what is right and wrong, morally speaking? How does he know that it's wrong to murder? And he may say, because it hurts people. Well, why is it wrong to hurt people? Well, because it causes them pain. Well, why is it wrong to cause them pain? Well, because I wouldn't want people to cause me pain. Well, why should we treat people the way we want to be treated? Well, because it's just the right thing to do. Well, that's the very question we're asking. How do you know it's the right thing to do? So they go round and around in circular reasoning and have no reason for it. They deny sin, yet recognize it, and then have no reason to recognize it. So the humanist denies the existence of evil, yet recognizes that people do evil things like Hitler and should be held accountable for their actions, and yet at the same time doesn't have a reason to think that anything is evil. This such a person is just self-deceived, aren't they? Claiming that sin doesn't exist, yet acting in a way that shows that they do believe that it exists. They believe the lie they've told themselves, and therefore they're living, as John is saying, in a fantasy land. They're self-deceived. We have no sin, but yet they live in such a way that recognizes it. But I doubt that there are many atheists and humanists who are listening to this. What about on the other end of the spectrum? There are groups like the sinless perfectionists who would call themselves Christians, but yet claim that in one way or another, they are sinless or can become sinless. Some groups say that you become sinless at conversion. I think the more dominant view is that one can become perfect through progressive sanctification. That at one point in your life, here and, here and now, as you live, before you die, you could be a perfect, sinless per- person. So the issue with this, however, is that if someone claims to be a Christian and yet says they presently don't have sins, what John is referring to, John says they're a self-deceived person. How can they really look at the law of God and think that they never transgress it in any thoughts, words, or actions? See, what John is saying here, and he's so serious about it, yet it's very simple in this test, is do you want to know if you're saved? He says, if you think that you have no sin, then you're deceived, and there's no truth in you. If you think you have no sin, you are not saved. Right? That's what he's saying. So those who are saying, I am sinless, I have no sin, or this oftentimes will come up, I haven't sinned in 35 years. People say that sort of thing. I have no sin presently. I have no sin. Yes, before I was a Christian, I sinned, but now I don't. I have no sin. He's saying you're self-deceived. Of course they're self-deceived. If you look at the law of God and you're saying, yeah, I haven't broken that in 30 years. That's insane. Now, some of you may be wondering, saying, okay, well, self-deception, that's kind of a scary thing because you don't know that you're deceiving yourself. So how can I know if I'm self-deceived? It's very simple. How do you view sin? How do you view your sin? He's saying, if you think that you have no sin, you're self-deceived. It's that simple. So do you think that you have no sin? If you think you have no sin, you are self-deceived. If you think you are a sinner, in this context is saying you're not self-deceived about that, if you recognize your sin. But yet again, I kind of doubt there's going to be many sinless perfectionists listening to this as well. So what's, what's a more common way that sin is denied? Well, I've talked to a number of people on the street and things like that, and people who go to church and you can go through the law of God, lying, lust, things like that. And they may say, 
no, I've never done that, kind of like the rich young ruler. Or they may say, well, yeah. And you go through and say, does that concern you that, you know, you've broken God's life? says, no, because God knows my heart. Oh, God knows your heart. And what they're saying is what I was doing. Yes, I did things on the outside that maybe might look wrong, but really it was all good on the inside. And God knows that it was all good. So it wasn't really, really sin. And he'll see that and he'll say, okay, yeah, you were good. I could see that in your heart because God knows the heart. And see, that is a very common self-deception. What does Jesus say? Remember, we just read it. Where does this sin come from? It's from the heart. And that is the thing that God sees. The thing is, we can find all sorts of ways to rationalize and try to make something out to be good when it's really wrong. But God does see through all of that. If we say we have no sin in any way, in one way or the other, John's saying you're self-deceived. You're self-deceived. It's just not true. You have sin. We're deceiving ourselves if we say we don't. He says the truth is not in us. The truth of God's word has not found place in our lives yet if we say we have no sin today. Now, that's what he says in verse 8 about those who deny the present reality of sin in their life. And then in verse 10, he builds upon the ideas there. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, he says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word does not in us. This is pretty similar, but there are some differences here. The phrase is, if we say that we have not sinned, and the idea there is that this is a person who's denying they have ever sinned. I have not sinned ever, right? So whether you're saying, I have no sin now, or whether you're saying, I have never sinned, he covers both bases there. So when this person evaluates himself, he says, yeah, never sinned, ever. Verse 8 is the denial of the present possession of the sinful nature. Verse 10 is the denial that you've ever committed a sinful action in your life. And the Gnostics that John would be refuting here would have said both of these things because they have no sinful nature, they think, and therefore they never sin. And besides, the physical body is bad, so what I've done in my life is never sinful, right? Everything we've ever done in the body isn't sin. We have no sin and we never have sinned. So they would have said both of these things, so John covers both of those things. But John has various, very serious things to say about those who deny that they have ever sinned. Remember there in verse 8, he's already said, if you say you have no sin, you're self-deceived, and the truth is not in that person. That is, he doesn't truly believe the word of God and is walking in darkness. But here he says, those who deny that they have sinned make God out to be a liar. How so? How do they make God out to be a liar? Simply put, God has said that everyone has sinned. This person is saying that they have never sinned. Therefore, they're saying that God is wrong. God says, you're a sinner. They're saying, no, I'm not. So they're saying God is wrong, that he is lying about the sinful condition of man and that everybody has sinned. Of course, you know, God has said this, Romans 3, 10 to 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ecclesiastes 7.20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. He's made this very clear for us in scripture. And yet if somebody denies that fundamental truth, that man is a sinner and, and that he sins, they've just rejected the word of God. They made him out to be a liar in effect. But John has already declared this one fundamental fact in verse 5, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So when it comes to his word, his word doesn't contain errors. 
He's never wrong about things. So when he says that man is a sinner, man is a sinner. And the people who deny it are the ones who are wrong, as John has already said. Those who, those who claim that they have not sinned are denying the word of God. And therefore, as he says, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. They have not received the word of God. So in other words, to sum this up, those who deny that they are sinners, whether saying I've never sinned or that I don't sin now or I have no sin now, those people are walking in the darkness and they're not walking in the light. And therefore, they don't really have fellowship with God. That's what he's saying here in this section. Fake, fake Christians or, or um, false converts, those who are in the church who are uh, in the darkness, they deny their own sinfulness. But what about the true Christian? What about the one who really does have fellowship with God? How does he view his sin? Look at verse 9. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Vast difference between the two groups, isn't there? While the false convert denies his sin, the true Christian confesses it freely to God. Confessing his sin means acknowledging his sin to God. means to say what God says about sin. So first, since God says that we do sin, the true Christian who has fellowship with him will say that as well, that he is a sinner and that he does sin. We confess that we're not good by nature, that we have a sinful nature, that we do not do good things. In fact, that we sin every day. We confess that what we do in the body does matter and that we can sin in the physical world. We confess that God's law is the objective standard for what's right and wrong. We confess that we sin. We confess that we still sin. We're still sinners. We still have sins to confess. We confess our sins, but not only in general, but even our specific sins to God. That's what we're doing. We're confessing. We're not denying our sin, but rather confessing it. Now, again, as you notice, John employs those if we phrases here in verse 9, if we, in this case, confess our sins. So in this case, he's saying this. If somebody in the church, not denying their sin, but rather confesses it, then this is what you should think about that. This is what, what uh, this shows. They confess their sin. This is what we should think about that. And what he's saying is if somebody in the church confesses their sins and does not deny that he's a sinner, that's evidence of a truly saved person and one who is walking in the light of the Lord. God says that we're sinners and we must agree. If we are in fellowship with him, we will. If we truly know God, we won't deny it. Think about that. If you were to deny that you are a sinner, not only, as he has already said, are you making God out to be a liar, since he has declared that you are a sinner, but you're also making the gospel message, the whole gospel message, to be a lie as well. Think about that. Why would Jesus need to come to save his people from their sins if you're not a sinner? What use could you have for a crucified Savior when you don't need salvation from your sins if you're not a sinner? The denial of sin means the denial of salvation. There's no need for the gospel. You've rejected it. You've lost the whole thing. You deny your sin. And again, they've made God to be a liar. When he says in Ecclesiastes 7.20, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. We all are sinners and we all have a great need for the Savior. So we're seeing here that the true Christian confesses his sins to God. He confesses his sins. 
if we confess our sins. And then we have this great promise for those who confess their sins. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in other words, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us. If we acknowledge our sin before him and our need for Jesus as our savior, he's going to forgive us. And the question raises, well, why will he forgive us? And he tells us, because God is faithful and righteous. Because he's faithful and righteous. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. So first, he's faithful. In other words, God always keeps his promises. He will not lie. He cannot lie. He's always faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13, it's a great verse, says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's part of his character to be faithful. He cannot go against himself. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, the author argues for um, assurance for us and, and a great encouragement for us based in the promises of God, in particular, God's covenant with Abraham and how that is really the gospel promise to us. He says this in Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So God swears on himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, Abraham did. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Now, what's he saying here? Saying God, when God says something, it's always true. He cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So when God promises salvation, when he gives the Abrahamic covenant, that is good enough. His word is good enough. You know what God did? Kind of kneel down to us or, or condescend to us rather to, to love us and give us more confirmation as he swears an oath too on top of it to give us more assurance. He's saying when men make a covenant, once they make it, they can't change it and it has to stick. They have to fulfill it. And God's saying, not only do I say it, but another unchangeable thing is I made a covenant so I can't change it either, right? So God can't lie in the first place. And then he makes a covenant just for our encouragement. God is faithful. He's saying, I want to show my faithfulness to you. So here's one of the promises that God gives to us that he's always faithful to. He gives to us this new covenant promise, Hebrews 8, 12. He says this, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So when God says he will forgive us, John's saying he is faithful. He is faithful. God will forgive us because he has promised to forgive those who trust in Christ. And God's always faithful to his promises. He cannot lie and he's confirmed it with an oath. Now he says not only is he faithful, but he's righteous to forgive us. Now, that might seem a little strange to some of us at first because you say, well, I think his righteousness or him being just is really manifested in God's wrath towards us. So how is it that God's righteousness um, is really one of the basis for, basis for our salvation or forgiveness? It's just like this. Is when God, God's righteousness is the basis for our salvation in that when, when Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the punishment in the place of his people. He was taking the curse of the law. He was taking satisfying divine justice against us. It was put on Jesus instead. So instead of us being punished for our sins, Jesus was punished for our sins instead. So since Jesus was punished for our sins, would it be righteous for God to punish us for our sins anyway? 
It wouldn't be. Because our sins have already been nailed to the cross. They've already been paid for. The debt's been canceled because of that. He cannot charge us with our sins anymore. He cannot punish us. That would be a violation of his righteousness because he's already dealt out justice on Jesus. In Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14, it says, When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Now hear this. Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So if it's nailed to the cross, can you bring it back and charge you with your debt again? No, it's not right. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There cannot be, because God in his righteousness has already dealt out justice on another. He will not deal it out on you. The debt's been canceled. He will not charge us with any sins again because they're laid on Jesus. And that's because of his righteousness that he will not charge us with our sins. So John says here that he'll forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The phrases there are very similar, aren't they? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. But they provide different images. The phrase forgive us our sins brings up the cancellation of debt, the forgiveness of debt. That God will not hold your debt of sin against you anymore. Kind of like we just saw there in Colossians 2. And then being cleansed from unrighteousness is very similar, but it gives you this picture of your dirty, filthy sin being washed away. Let's look at what God says in Isaiah 118. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Both images are giving you the same thing. It's God's promise of your forgiveness of our sins. And so it will be acceptable to God. So to sum up this, if someone in the church has an attitude toward their sin, that they recognize that they are evil and need to be forgiven, that they are wicked and need to be cleansed, then that is evidence that they are truly saved. If they have this attitude that they need Jesus as their savior, that they say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I have sinned. I am dirty. I need cleansing. I am guilty. I need forgiveness. I'm in debt. I need that to be canceled. Then John's saying that is good evidence that you have fellowship with God. It's very similar to what verse nine there is similar to what he says in verse seven. It says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sins. There's that promise that these are the evidences that you are really forgiven, that you are really saved. If you walk in the light and one of those things that shows that you're walking in the light is that you actually recognize that you're a sinner and confess it to God. If you're somebody who says, yes, I'm a Christian, but you deny that you're a sinner, he's saying you're self-deceived and the truth is not in you. But those who confess their sins, who see their need for forgiveness, that's evidence that they are walking in the light. And therefore, that they truly do know God, that they are saved. And therefore, that their sins are forgiven, that they are clean in God's sight. So taking all of this in, what do we do? What do we do with these facts that we get from these three verses? <clears throat> so remember, again, that what John is doing here is he's giving us tests to discern, for us to discern whether or not we have eternal life. That 1 John 5, 13, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's why he writes these things. He's already told us that if you claim to know God, but yet walk in darkness, that you lie and don't practice the truth. 
from the text this evening, we see that denying that you're a sinner and that you sin, that's a part of walking in the darkness. You're not living according to the truth if you have that attitude towards your sin. You really rejected what God has said about you, that you're a sinner, and therefore have made him out to be a liar, he says, because you've rejected what he says. He says you're self-deceived, you're thinking too highly of yourself, and have rejected the word of God. That's how serious this attitude, this false attitude towards sin is. If you say you have no sin and that you have not sinned, he's saying you're not saved if you have that attitude. He says those who are saved, they walk in the light and they live, and they live according to the truth of God's word. And so since God has said in his word that we are sinners, the true Christian confesses that he is a sinner. He confesses his sins to God as violations of God's commands. And he sees his continuous need for Jesus as his savior. Because he's still a sinner. He still sins every day. The true Christian believes what God has said in his word and he walks in the light. And so therefore his view of sin is going to be molded by the truth of God's word. He confesses it freely. He throws himself at the mercy of God. He rests in that promise of God of forgiveness because he knows that God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins because of what Jesus has done. Because of his promise of Jesus and because of his righteousness. So, if you, for one reason or another, and there are millions of ways to do this, if you excuse your sin and write it off as something that isn't real, that you're not really a sinner and what you're doing is actually really good somehow, make excuses for yourself in such a way to think that you haven't done anything that God would hold you accountable for and you're not really guilty of anything, What God says here is he calls upon you to stop lying about him because you're making him out to be a liar because he has said that you are a sinner, that all are sinners, including you. He also says to stop lying to yourself because you know that when you you look into the mirror of the law of God, it shows you that you're dirty. That's what scripture says about it. It's like a mirror that shows you that you're filthy and that you need to be clean. So if you look at the law of God, and are honest and not self-deceived, you'll see yourself as a sinner. So he's saying, stop lying to yourself about it. So instead of pretending that you're clean in God's sight, what he's saying here is go to Jesus, who can actually cleanse you from your moral filth because of his death on the cross, where he took the penalty for sinners. You can actually be accepted as a forgiven and clean sinner on the basis of what Jesus did. The irony here is that if you, on your own merits, think that you are righteous and sinless, you are, you're self-deceived and you're not saved. But if you go to Jesus, he will take away all of your sins so that you are clean in his sight. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. Because the debt's been paid by him. Because he has cleansed you with his shed blood. Remember what Jesus himself said. He didn't come for the righteous, or in other words, for those who think that they're righteous. In Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what he came for. And those who call themselves righteous but are not are self-deceived. He's saying, recognize who you really are. Accept what the word of God says about you, that you are a dirty sinner, that you are in a huge mountain of debt before God and that only he can forgive you. But the good news is this, is that as he says, he came for sinners. So we're told here, confess your sins. Call upon him for forgiveness. And he says, you will be saved. Why? He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. That is his promise for those who repent and trust in him, who confess their sins to him. If you confess your sins, he will forgive. 
Let's pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for these warnings and these tests that we can use to examine ourselves. We pray that you would remove all blinders from us that would make us think that we are good. That we would not be self-deceived into thinking that, well, there's a good intention behind that, so it, it erases the evil things that I do. Help us to recognize that we are sinners by nature. We have sinful hearts. We have depraved minds. We can't even trust ourselves because of how evil we are. We pray that you will help us to receive not our words and our ideas, but to receive the truth of your word. One, that we are sinners. And two, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that. We praise you for Christ's sake. Amen.